Okay, welcome to the uh, episode 15 or 16, maybe even 17, I don't know, it's the, anyway, it's the Christmas special, the festive special, of shot by both sides, so I was lucky enough to catch up with Steve Harrison uh, for the second time, as we explain later on, we actually abandoned uh, the recording of the first thing, because it, it just went on for hours. Very interesting for us, but probably not uh, for anyone else. So we re-recorded it. I think it's turned out better. Anyway, for those who don't know Steve, he's a legend, legendary uh, uh, English uh, writer and creative director, principally with, in a sort of direct uh, marketing uh, sense. Also author of a number of books, uh, including probably the definitive uh, biography of Howard Gossage, from, uh, San Francisco in the 60s, of course, everyone knows. And most recently, uh, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, which has uh, caused some consternation and controversy. Uh, but it's definitely, I think, it's one of those advertising books that, that should be should be read. So in the in the conversation, we uh, you know put the put the world to rights a little bit. We talk about the sort of uh, how brand purpose is. Um, lost its way a little bit, the dearth of working class talent in advertising uh, and a few other things and then Steve picks uh, picks some music as, as we always do, uh, quite a diverse uh, mixture of stuff there from, uh, well I'll, I'll, I won't tell you what's coming up, I'll let you hear it anyway. So uh, without further ado, uh, two Scrooges, uh, myself and Steve Harrison. Speakers aren't great on this thing, so if you, I'm a, and I'm a bit mutton Jeff, so if you could speak, if you could speak up, that would be great. Otherwise, I'll be doing my Norman Evans impression. Can you hear me, mother? Uh, I'm turning up the... That's better, that is fantastic, thank yeah, you. Okay, that's me turned up the input levels on my on the mic. There we go. Terrific. Cool, right. Okay, that's the uh, technology sorted out. H- how have you been? I've been okay. Um, most of, kind of a lot of my time has been taken up with the book. Uh, right. it's, a, it, it's come as a as a great surprise to me, yeah. Um, as, as I might have said, that I expected to, to disappear under a heap of criticism and obloquy, yeah. and I could return to the obscurity from whence I came, having yeah. you know yeah. made a made a talk and effort yeah. to you know kind of voice my opinions. But it 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 um, it hasn't worked out that way these past three yeah. months. Yeah. Well, you know, I can see because I think what. You know what you've sort of stepped up and just and written down a lot of people are thinking stuff you know of a of a similar nature anyway you know and uh and and what that's what what it's, it takes somebody has to come up and sort of legitimize that you know because you know despite this myth of like the sort of connected world and yeah, and all that you know, it's connected in terms of certain opinions. But if you, if, yeah. but but if you have a, 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 an opinion that deviates from, you know, a particular 
sort of yeah. orthodoxy, you yeah. can, there's a tendency to think, am I the only one who thinks this is complete horseshit, you know? And, uh, <laughs> um, but then, but then your book has sort of landed and it's a bit like, um, uh, maybe we'll talk about this later when we get into music, but uh, I remember the last time we chatted when we talked about Bowie, right? And there yeah. was that, yeah. and Starman on top of the pops in 72, you know? And, and, yeah. and it just kind of gave license to every kid who felt a little bit weird to say, to say, actually, it's quite cool to be weird, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and so in, in a small way, I think Can't Sell, Won't Sell has done a similar job, which is, it, you know, it, it's given license for people to think, actually, all this stuff that gets written about in the, in, in the press is just nonsense in, uh, in the ad press, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, yeah, that should, that should lead us into... Um, what for the listeners, you know, this if you think, uh, hang on a minute, where's the starting and where's this going? This is the, the second conversation that we've had uh, about this, and we've sort of uh, abandoned the first recording because it was uh, a bit like Ben Hur, wasn't it? It was a sort of five hour epic. It, it, it was three hour, <laughs> the Cecil B. DeMille production, it really yeah. was. Yeah. It, um, God so this, knows how you would, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, so this it, is going to be the short, punchy version. So, um, Heaven's yeah, so you've probably said this a million times in the last couple of months, but do you want to just, uh, just for the benefit of, uh, you know, uh, Australia principally, right. uh, get, uh, give us a bit of the sort of um, uh, the, the background, you know, maybe, I don't know if you talked about this with other, uh, with other people, but I'm always interested in what, what were the sort of pivotal moments where you thought, that's it, I, this has oh. to be written down. Okay. Yeah. Um, it started off, uh, I was asked by a chap called Patrick Collister, um, who was, he's, he's probably, I think he's the only person who's been an executive creative director of an advertising agency, Ogilvy and Mather, of a direct agency, um, EHS brand, which were very successful in London. And then the digital agency, well, not a digital agency, but he was creative director of Google, for goodness sake. So right. Paddy knows how many beans make five. Um, yeah. And he, God bless him, bought the Capels Awards, um, which are which were an, an old New York uh, awards show, yeah. um, aimed primarily at the direct marketing industry, named for John Capels, the writer mm. of the brilliant Tested Advertising Methods, the author of that. Yeah. And Paddy bought the Capels and he asked me to speak at the inaugural awards and he said, will you make a speech on the, well, basically around why we're, why we're not interested in selling anymore. And as a start of the 10, he told me a rather alarming statistic that of the 28 Grand Prix winners at that year's Cannes, only three of them had a, 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 a five of them had increased sales as an objective. Um, and then I, I looked further into this, you know, and you can see it across the board now, you know, it was an alarming thought, yeah. and I thought, was it an aberration? Um, and it isn't. Um, yeah, I think, the, is, is it WARC? W-A-R-C compile a report on the most awarded ads around the world yeah. at Cannes, at one show, uh, B&AD. And seven of the top 12 are 
social purpose driven advertising yeah. aimed at solving the social problems as perceived by people of a liberal progressive bent yeah. um, and only five of them would have encouraged anybody to stick their hand in the pocket get out their debit card and buy something yeah. and they and it just struck me again if the work that we are presenting as exemplary does indicate that we've lost interest in and the ability to sell things and i was trying to work out why that was and um there are several reasons but the one that seems so glaringly obvious to me is that the industry is so left leaning that it has lost interest in or or simply does not want to f perform its function as the engine of growth and consumption mm -hmm. in a free market capitalist system mm -hmm. it's rejected that what would be regarded as its commercial purpose and it's found that the people who work in the industry have found a new raison d'etre and that is their social purpose and that is that we are saving the world that's yeah. what advertising does now it, it it does it it does it it's nothing it's nothing to do with demand generation in fact that's quite evil yeah. it's saving the world it's funny i mean when i in my time in big network sort of creative agencies there's a, you know the, there was always a sense of um you know every year we would take on one or two pro bono projects mm. you know uh, yeah just uh, you know on the premise like right we're going to do this for you but we get to do whatever the hell we want you know and that was exactly. and, and you could and you know that's where you could you could you know sort of uh shoehorn in some of the more crazy you know exciting creative yeah. ideas in, in the agency because uh you know because they were getting it for free so what what they're going to do so that's yeah that's kind of always been about, but, uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, to be honest, because, uh, no. you know, because it's a win-win, you know, for, for the NFPs and the agency as yeah. well. But um, it, it's funny because I was thinking, I was trying to trace back, so, I mean, you, you can maybe tell me when you first heard the notion of, you know, because at the core of all of this stuff is the idea of brand purpose, right? So. Yeah. You know, the the purpose of a corporation used to be to sort of you know uh, you know create employment and generate you know uh, dividend for shareholders and, and and sort of stuff like that you know kind of concerned with uh, you know the financial aspect of of business but then I I remember um, I'm sure Mark Carroll's is a mutual. Uh, acquaintance and friend of ours and he he wrote in and this would be about 15 years ago uh, he, he did a book called welcome to the creative age and he kind of there's a little bit in there where he talks about the idea of brand being a word that had lost its meaning because it was right. getting applied all over the place for things that weren't brand and so he said why don't we retire the word brand and talk about a purpose idea as being mm. at the core of a company. And, but his idea was, you know, for instance, if Coca-Cola, instead of saying what's the brand idea, he said, what's the purpose idea? Well, its purpose is like happiness and refreshment and uh, yes. and together this, you know. But then purpose became a sort of a weasel word 
shortly after that. And now it's synonymous with, as you say, uh, ideas that are sort of of the cultural left, I guess. You know, not I, necessarily I could, the economic left, but the cultural left. I could see Mark's point uh, and purpose, uh, you know, kind of, uh, if you do want to replace what I thought is a perfectly good term, and that is what is the brand idea. Uh, but if you do re replace it with purpose, that's good. But it should be that the brand serves a purpose, yeah. not has a purpose, because the serving of a purpose makes it consumer-oriented. Yeah. Okay. And it's outward-looking. Yeah. But has it having a purpose puts all of the focus back in on the brand. Yeah. To the to the to, so the the, the the people you're supposed you're supposed to be selling that brand to are are are. Uh, oblivious to or of, of no consequence to yeah. to this whole set of thinking that I have a purpose this brand has a purpose yeah. when it was this brand serves a purpose then it got things the right way around um, but it because it became but now it is inward looking and self-serving yeah and there's and there's a sort of core set of purposes that are allowed uh, to be <laughs> adopted isn't there? you know because you could you know you could say, well, all brands have a have a purpose, you know. And so yes. the, the 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 National Rifle Association ha, has a purpose, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But, but it has a purpose that is uh, that is uh, frowned upon by a certain class. Of, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. The, we need to differentiate from the from the onset that having a, mm. that a brand purpose. Um, is I think uh, can be used as another word for the brand idea, but yeah. the, uh, uh, we we diverge then when we talk about its social purpose, and I think that that is very different when we get into corporate that the brand is marketing its corporate social responsibility. Okay, yeah. so it's corporate social responsibility, which I think should uh, most <laughs> most commercial institutions should be cognizant of. And should be making some efforts to do something about uh, mm. is fine, but I think that when it be, when we start talking about a social purpose, then what we're doing is then merchandising or marketing the the brand's corporate social responsibility. And but, I my point is that I don't think that that is a valid, um, appropriate, or particularly commercially viable go-to-market proposition. Yeah. Well, the key word in, in corporate social responsibility is responsibility, because then it becomes yeah. a commitment. You know, it's like, right, we are, our responsibility yeah. is we're going to commit yeah. X percent of our profits to, uh, you know, a, a marine conservation charity or something. Fair it's like play, serving yeah. a purpose here. Yeah, serving a purpose, yeah. Rather than, but just having a purpose, as you say, doesn't actually compel you to do anything. You just have to... Uh, have an, an appearance of being supportive of some kind of cause or something. And I always used to, when when I was rejecting briefs as a creative director, I used to say any proposition that results in the 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 the, the prospect saying I'm very pleased for you, is not a good proposition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm very pleased for you. You know, kind of, uh, and then, you know, it doesn't work. It's yeah. it, the, the 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 prospect is saying, and therefore it will do what for me. Yeah, I'm actually writing that down because that is that is. Uh... 
Well, it used to save me a lot. It used to save me a lot of yeah. time critiquing the, the the briefs, really. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I'm very pleased for you. I was I was like the one where if you you, you know what you you would sort of mentally in your head just stick the word you or your in you know in front of the line, you know, and it's kind yeah. of uh, you know because if it's like just do it, it's like you just do it. It's like all oh, right, yeah. it's, it's it's talking. Yeah, it's you know. talking to it's talking to someone. Yeah. 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 Cool. <laughs> Anyway, listen. Remember that the last time we talked, we went about two hours before we introduced the the, the first uh, tune. Well, we, so. we 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 had a good puppet. What's he called? Um, um, purple cow man and everything. Oh, uh, Seth Gordon. Uh, yeah. Well, we can still. We yeah, can, we, we got we that up our chest. <laughs> it's a bit <laughs> self-indulgent, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we can still. We can still. Take, we can, was, if we have time at the end. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so it's obviously this is this is Desert Island uh, discs. So what's um, what's uh, I know what it is, but for the benefit of the listeners, okay, for the benefit first. of yep. yeah. Um, I the that you, you've alluded to it. Um, I when I grew and you, I'm, I'm I'm going to disagree with you about what this record did to the to the mass of people. Um, you say that it gave everybody who was a, who had a you know, kind of like a, who who didn't feel like they fitted in, or it took the permission to be eccentric, to be yeah. hey, you know, kind of like to to zig when everyone sacked. I'll tell you my take on that, okay. uh, having grown up with it. Um, I was a, uh, I would be a twelve-year-old skinhead in 1970, a a thirteen-year-old suedehead in 1971, and by then, kind of this working-class youth culture. At, at, Kind of was floundering, really. Um, if 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 a, you know if if five hundred headbangers on the Blackpool cop can be ironic, we'd started growing our hair as long as any hippie, wearing looms and t-shirts, and the most knackered Martins with Doc, Doc Martins, that is knackered airwear, with the thinnest of soles because we'd had them for three or four years by then, but we had no music really. Um, right. It, along the way, we'd had Tamla, Tamla Motown, of course. Yeah. Um, and there were a few people who were into soul, and, and particularly in my neck of the woods, northern soul, but not many. Quite right. frankly, the, you know, the number of people who say they were at, this will be lost on most of your re listeners, I think, but at Wigan Casino or The Torch or The Twisted Wheel, those were great northern soul venues. So the same as the number of people who said they saw the Velvet Underground, you know, kind of only about 500 people ever did either of them. And yet 5 million people claimed that they were there at the time, you know. So we had no music. And, the, and then tuned into Top of the Pops, uh, July 1972, I think it was. And this thing just come, came on. And it was like, what the... And then when he just stared into uh, stared into the barrel of the camera and pointed, I had to talk, I had to phone someone so I picked on you, who, who, and he pointed down the barrel of the camera into my living room, straight at me, and changed my life and changed the lives of countless fourteen-year-old lads throughout the United Kingdom. I mean, you, the number of people it, it saved, you know, kind of it, it's uh, it's where were you when JFK died? Where were you when David Bowie sang Starman? You know, when you first saw Starman on Top of the Pops, you know, yeah. kind of. And, and then within like, within a week, everyone on the Blackpool Cop was a Bowie freak, you yeah. know. And none of us had any problem with the bisexual thing. That was the, 
the, the strange thing. None of us yeah. could give a fig about, you know, kind of the yeah. gay thing. In fact, we all, we all became as camp as Christmas, whilst, yeah. you know, kind of... Um, but still being, still being football hooligans at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and this is the thing that I don't think people remember, who people don't know unless they were there, that the middle class kids still had their Emerson, Lake and Palmer and their Pink Floyd and their Rolling Stones, Beatles and the Rolling Stones, frankly. Yeah. You know, kind yeah. of uh, no Elvis Beatles of the Rolling Stones in 1977, as, yeah. as I'm sure three other former skinheads, suede heads, <laughs> Noe freaks, uh, yeah. otherwise known as, as, as uh, Joe Strummer, Mick Jones and Paul Simonon uh, sang. Yeah. So yeah, so it was a it was a thing for for um, it, uh, it, it was a peculiar thing, but it didn't happen to everybody. It wasn't a that in that first eighteen months, first twelve months, it was very much a working class street thing. The Bowie, yeah. the Bowie yeah. look, and the Bowie fandom, you know. Yeah, and he, I think uh, you know he had about a year of just totally dominating because there was there was nothing else, you know. So it was kind of like. It wasn't like you were a metal fan or something, you know, it had like a, a number of no. groups or whatever. It was just Bowie and that was it. But there was nowhere for us to go in, you yeah. know, kind of we didn't, we couldn't like, yeah. um, you know, uh, yeah. you know, all the stuff that kids in great coats like with their, yeah. you know, kind of with their albums under their arms, mm -hmm. you know, kind of we, that just, we, we could, that didn't relate, we couldn't relate to that at mm. all. But then, about, but then about a year later, then along came Slade and uh, Roxy Music and... Yeah, like I think Roxy Music followed on quickly. I mean, Roxy Music yeah. had some credibility, but everyone started dressing. Every band thereafter had a gay member, you know, yeah. kind yeah. of an overtly, obviously not gay. You know, it was yeah. insulting, really, yeah. you know, kind of. But, a, but and a, it, a cartoon gay, you know, bass guitarist or something yeah. like that, you know. And, I remember uh, Dave Hill at uh, Slade, you know, who was the who was the guitarist with the, the yeah. with, the, with the sort of high fringe and the long hair and the, yeah. um, you know, so he was the sort of flamboyant one, you know, but uh, but he but you know he sort of said that he had to do that because the rest of the group were so <laughs> just looked like looked like yeah. dockers in platforms, you know, so uh, you know. Well. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Slade were for boneheads from Wolverhampton. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. T -t Tipton skins, I think I remember being okay. chased by them one yeah. night in Blackpool. <laughs> Not by Slade, but by. Um, it might have been. And, it might have been. and the the thing about skinheads were were they were they racist? No, they weren't. I mean, no. the, the the big black lad who gave me a good hide in that night was. Um, was uh, it, it was colorblind was the violence that he was inflicting upon me yeah oh, but all the all the i mean i i, I was sort of second wave skinhead so about 1979 mm. uh, at the tail yeah. end of uh, of punk you know but we adopted all of the you know the same you know because obviously it was the same clothes and everything yeah because there was the it, it was on the back of a kind of two-tone you know because the specials and that came out yes of course yeah. You know, so, yeah so uh to be a mod was a bit too expensive you know but but yeah. you, could, <laughs> you had to buy yeah. nicer clothes but you could just have jeans and a fred perry shirt and you'd be the skin you know but, and an arrington uh, jacket yeah. yeah yeah but i mean all the music was uh it was like scar and uh, yeah uh, Blue Beat and, and then and sort of and Motown and everything came back uh, then so yeah it's a I think it's a great myth that that was it, 
there was a small element of uh, I remember like yeah, the yeah, National yeah. Front and whatever, but I mean there was just but, as many it was just as many long hairs on National Front marches as there was skinheads. Exactly, so, exactly. Just it's funny your Wigan Casino anecdote. You know, it's it's a bit like uh, you know. So a few years later, the Sex Pistols. You know, if everyone everyone who claimed to have seen the exactly. Sex Pistols in 1976, they need to have done they five done so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> five nights at Wembley or something. Yeah. <laughs> they were <laughs> very good. Yeah. <clears throat> right, I, I'll play I'll play the tune and then we'll talk about some other stuff. Thank Didn't know what time it was, the lights were low, oh, oh, I leaned back on my radio, oh, oh, some cat was laying down some rock and roll, that's all he said, then the loud sound it seemed to fade, came back like a slow voice on a wave of Speaking of, I just try to say what what's the kind of link from from Bowie in, into this? But um, I think <clears throat> it, you know this is something that needs to be sort of unpicked a little bit because, and we talked about this before, but advertising, you know, traditionally has been an occupation. That uh, here's a here's a story I remember. Jeremy Bullmore, apparently, he was chairman of. Uh, JWT. Thompson, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when he was a young copywriter, apparently, uh, just sort of starting out, and he was in, I think JWT were in Bloomsbury Square or something at the, at the time. This had been the 50s, you know? Yeah. And uh, he said one night they were pulling an all nighter. Um, <clears throat> and so it was about five o'clock in the morning, and they were still writing away, and somebody looked out the window. Uh, and, and there was a bunch of like horse drawn carriages, you know, coming over the cobbled sort of streets of Bloomsbury Square. Yeah. And somebody said, Oh, the suits are up early this morning. You know? <laughs> and that, but but, but uh, uh, Bullmore had said he was lucky to get into JWT because he didn't have a double barreled name, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, they, and they asked him when he joined whether he wanted to be paid his salary monthly. Or yearly, <laughs> but so, so that's how kind of upper middle class the industry, yeah. uh, or even upper class or aristocracy, I guess. Then I mean, maybe it's sort of come down a little bit now, but it's still very much a middle class profession for American listeners. When I say middle class, I don't mean working class, which is what you think yeah. is middle class. We're talking about British middle class, which is, you know. 
university educated professional classes uh, you know or you know people with money basically yeah but um but it was you know has always been thus but but back you know but there was a sort of empathy for ordinary people in some of the great you know a lot of the great advertising from previous decades mm. but it seems to be the more that uh that the industry has become obsessed with uh you know things other than you know making products and services attractive to to a mass of buyers and, yeah. and around some other kind of you know like we talked about purpose but um that it's the it's how out of touch that upper middle class cohort is with the concerns of ordinary people has become you know it, that's what's changed because it's the same class of people that that are mostly in there but they're not even yeah. interested not even interested in, in what ordinary working people might want um i mean that was my uh, i think that's your view as well isn't it? It, it it is i would say that the the industry in the 60s particularly in the united states for american listeners is yeah. that the advertising industry gave um Italians and Jews, their, their first opportunity at white collar jobs or something like that. Um, and it was the Italians and Jews who, who created the, uh, who, who fired and fueled the creative revolution in advertising in the 1960s and 1970s. And similarly in the 1960s and 1970s, UK agencies like Colette Dickinson Pierce and um and bmp um and um you know kind of it there was an influx of working class boys and girls um and i would say that it was that which accounts for the the brilliance of a lot of the work that was created in in that time um because it was created by people who knew the who the people for whom they were creating mm -hmm. um, and it has gradually in the United Kingdom become yet again a middle-class preserve to the effect in fact that 70% of, of, of the people who work in advertising in the United Kingdom 70% of them they grew up in a family where the primary wage earner was in the AB social category, which is the richest social category. So 70% of the people who work in advertising are from the richest cohort in the United Kingdom. And the AB, AB social class in the United Kingdom, the average is 29% of people come from that, mm -hmm. from that cohort. So we are richer and more affluent. Um, and we've lost um, and 88% of us have got degrees and MAs, would you believe, whereas mm. the, the national average is 24%. Mm. Um, so we are, uh, I, I must say that, I mean, you, you uh, to read Andrew Tenzer and Ian Murray's The Aspiration Window just is a revelation in itself as to how our aspirations who work in advertising are so far in advance or so far beyond the aspirations of the mainstream people for whom we are creating. Mm. Um, and we are, we are now free from, because it's, a, it's, it's one of the UK's most elite industries as well, uh, because we are, are by and large free from the everyday worries that keep the mainstream man and woman awake at night. 
we've created new ways of differentiating ourselves, we have new things to worry about. Okay, mm. we, are, we are so comfortable in our material uh, realm that we've created new things for us to worry about and new purposes for us to create our advertising that, that, that challenges as advertising people. Mm. So our, our aspirations are totally different and our goals are, are totally different to the, to, the, to the man and woman in the street. Mm. It's funny, I saw, um, uh, I, I, mean, I shouldn't do this, but like reading stuff that people write on LinkedIn, you know, and, uh, and, and some dude... <laughs> I do a bit of that myself now, right? <laughs> to, my, to my shame. Yeah, I, you know, it's just that my doctor has told me not to do it, but I, but I, but I can't stop. You know? <laughs> but some, uh, some guy was saying 2020 wasn't such a bad year and went on to list all of these like achievements like Tesla sending a rocket uh, you know, into space and like blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, and I couldn't help myself. I had to comment. I said, "I'm sure the millions of people are unemployed uh, are, are going to be, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, are going to be pleased to hear about that." And they come back with some smart ass retort, you know, to try and dig himself yeah. out of a hole. But I thought that's really that is symbolic of the lack of empathy, you know, uh, you know that, that certain, you know, a certain class of media. Well, I also think the last time I heard someone saying that such and such year was this one, it wasn't so bad. This, that, that I was amazed four years ago, as we came to the end of 2016, the number of columnists who said that 2016 was the Annus Horribilis, you know, mm. in their life. And, it, and that could be explained by simply Brexit and Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and. And I think this is possibly one of the reasons why we don't produce advertising which resonates with the mainstream anymore. It's because yeah. we don't like them, Ian. We yeah. don't like them. You know, yeah. kind of the people who voted for Brexit, the people we voted for, who voted for Donald Trump, that basket of, what, what did Hillary call them? The basket of... Deplorables. Uh, deplorables, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. kind of uh, all those bigots, those nativists, those yeah. selfish people. You know, kind of how can we bring ourselves to, 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 to empathise with them yeah. when we actually despise them? Yeah. It's funny, the Brexit thing, you know, because although I am, of course, British, but in Australia, so I was able to observe it kind of without really having, a, you know, a, a dog in the fight sort of thing, because I didn't mm. really, you yeah. know. Uh, and, I, and I thought, you know, there were actually, there were pretty good arguments for remaining, and there were some very yeah. good arguments for for leaving, but nobody used any of those arguments. That it was no. a ba battle of sort of straw man arguments on on both sides. You know, of, <laughs> there was nothing yes. to do with the issue. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it's yeah, it, it was it, it was crazy. Yeah, but but that's right. but but what happened was with uh, it, you know the sort of acceptable uh, opinion was that. Uh, that we should remain in the EU, and and you know you weren't allowed to deviate from that that opinion, and so no. consequently the the actual burden of having to understand the issue uh, was taken away because all you had to do was pick a side, but you didn't even need to know what you were arguing for, you know, particularly on on the remain uh, uh, side. Well, I, I think once you once you've ring fenced the opposition's argument with terms like racist, 
nativist, um, you know, kind of ignorant, selfish. You don't have to have an argument with them, do you? I mean, you, you know, the easiest way to close down your 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 opponent is, yeah. is to excuse them of being an anti-Semite, for example. Yeah. You know, as yeah. as was levelled at the Labour Party in the last, you know, over the past two years, or a fascist or yeah. a bigot, as was labelled at uh, Nigel Farage, for yeah. example. So you can't yeah. even. It isn't possible to even. It isn't necessary to engage in conversation with them because you've ring fenced that argument and you, yeah. you and you and you've put them in the basket of the deplorables and. Yeah. I was going to say, it's a classic tactic, which is you don't have to win the argument. You just have to find one flaw in the opposing yeah. argument. And then and it's like, well, I, there you go. I, I rest my case. <laughs> but you don't yeah. have to actually argue your own, your own uh, side. And, and, then, and then just wait until you are right, which mm. in the fullness of time, you probably will be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, so while we're on, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, British working class, American working class, deplorables and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I guess Bruce Springsteen, mm -hmm. uh, you know, comes right out of that sort of unfashionable New Jersey uh, kind of, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, looking across the river or across the bay or whatever at New York, you know, so he's got that kind of uh, slightly outsider uh, yeah. or outside of a kind of, you know, the, the, I'm trying to make some analogy with like the kind of New York kind of art rock elite kind of thing. And then yeah. Bruce, Bruce was like their equivalent of punk rock, really. Uh, and your next tune uh, is from that sort of period. So Springsteen kind of predated punk by about a year, but all of the elements are there, except there's sort of level of musicianship and everything is probably up a couple of gears. <laughs> but, yeah, they, infinitely yeah. better. Yeah, they yeah. could play and they had a, they had yeah. a saxophonist and their songs went on yeah. for more than 90, 90 seconds. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so, but yeah, I mean, I, as far as, well, I, I kind of, Bowie had produced Young Americans and there was no, uh, you know, kind of, it was okay, but you're, you're, it's two years down the line and what else is there? Uh, and my friend, Mark Goodwin, who was always, you know, kind of, I thought I, I had the gestalt by the bollocks, but he had it by the, God knows what, you know, kind of, and he, for, for instance, he was the, he, I remember him playing a, a, a bootleg version of Jonathan Richmond's Modern Lovers, um, right. Here Come the Martian Martians, in about 1974, I think it was, right. so this was how, how, um, yeah, that's how switched on he was, yeah. Yes, very much so. Uh, and he went, he said, he came back to Blackpool with three albums under his arm, having just been to the Hammersmith Odeon to see uh, Bruce Springsteen. And he gave them to me and I just played them until they wore out. You know, mm. and this was in probably November 1975, I think it was. Um, and so, yeah, until the, until punk came along, this was, this was my anthem, these were my anthems. Really. It was about uh, living on the street um, in, in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which was a, a kind of run-down seaside town. Yeah. Uh, and I lived in a run-down, not, it wasn't quite as run-down there. It was a very exciting town, was Blackpool yeah. in those days. Um, it, it, um, and so, yeah, so the song, the, the, the track that I picked is, um, I, you know, kind of, it, it was 
pretty much a, I could very much relate to it, um, running around the nightclubs and bars and, you know, kind of uh, all, all of the, the nonsense going on in the pool when, you know, yeah. when I was 18, 19 years of age. It was yeah. a dangerous and exciting time to be 18 and 19. But when yeah. you're part of a, when you're part of a, a culture which outsiders would think of is dangerous and violent. If you're when you're part of it, it's not remotely dangerous or violent. Mm. You know, it's not remotely threatening because if you're an integral part of it, you know how it works. You know, mm. that's what that's that's what a culture is. It has its own values. It has its own mores, and you if you if you internalize them, then you survive. And it was it was like that running wild in Blackpool when I was a late teenager yeah it's, it's funny that the uh i remember reading the because uh, it was just a little bit before my time i was still you know 1975 i think springsteen was too sophisticated for me i was like 11 yeah. or 12 or something or 11 yeah uh, so you know slade was 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 good enough so i came to it later in life you know um yeah. But it's the th even like recent albums like Magic, you know, which was like six yeah. or seven years ago. I remember like you know, uh, day that came out, um, of course, much less effort to get new music now. It's just like I put it on Spotify, you know. But I used to drive up and down, <laughs> uh, up to the city from here. So where I live, uh, which is just outside uh, uh, Melbourne, I used to um, I used to drive down to what they call the Beach Road. And then you get right. a run, a run of about forty kilometers all along the the, the beach, right up to the yeah. city. Uh, and that year, when I was doing that, doing that run, I just had that Bruce Springsteen Magic album just on yeah. constant rotation because yeah. I, I was just this is exactly how this music is supposed to be listened to, in a car, yeah. in the sun, <laughs> you know, going along the beach, you know. Uh, he, he is a one-man advertisement for the U.S. motor industry, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Truly, truly is, is, yeah. as far as driving, yeah, I think I would learn to drive and if, you know, kind of, yeah. uh, it, it would be the only inducements I would have to yeah. get back behind a car wheel again. Yeah. But the fir first album that I really, that, that I latched onto was Darkness, right? Because right. Uh, I was a huge Clash fan, right? And the Clash yeah. had signed to CBS. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and there was an interview with them in the NME. And uh, yeah. so on the day they'd signed to CBS, they got let into this room in, or would have been a room in CBS Records where all of the albums were there, all the back catalog and anybody that signed right. could just go in and help themselves. And right. all, and, they, and there's a picture of Mick Jones running out with like an arm full of Bruce Springsteen albums <laughs> and, and a darkness on the edge of town t-shirt and everything and that was... <laughs> <laughs> so, right. and the whole of it, and the whole of the CBS thing that was all they wanted was Bruce Springsteen, you know, and that Bruce was sort of, and that that sort of gave him instant kind of credibility with with sort of punk kids. And then you looked at the Darkness yeah. album cover, and it's like, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, leather yeah. jacket, scruffy kind of hair, yeah. not not yeah. too long, you know, jeans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we could probably let him kind in. of kind of vacant look on his face yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll ha we'll have him. Yeah. 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 All right, cool. Right, we'll play the tune. Right, growing up. Well, I stood stone like at midnight, suspended in my masquerade, and I combed my hair that was just right and commanded the night brigade. I was open the plane and crossed by. 
Something you, you mentioned before, um, and about uh, so we were talking about about in the sixties and seventies, sort of influx of, of working class kids into into the industry in the UK. And I remember yeah. um, there, there's a talk that I used to give a few years ago uh, to sort of uh, young planners, you know, where I give them a bit of a history of sort of account planning, you know, where, where it came from, you know, because you know, the kids would have watched Mad Men and thought, hang on a minute, there's no planners there. How, what, what happened? It's like, well, because they didn't come till, <laughs> till much later, you know. And uh, and so the this is the myth, I don't know if it's the real story, but 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 it shows the sort of egalitarian nature of the of the discipline because it was kind of invented at the same time in two places almost exactly yeah. the same time which was the JWT um in about 1965 over in Berkeley Square or wherever they were it said but also in BNP which yeah. people uh, in Paddington which people will now know as TDB but um yeah uh, but BNP were very much you know their main client at the time was the British Labour Party so they were very much the working class weren't they sort of left-wing kind of uh, agency, whereas JWT were the TOFs, and yes. yet and yet they both uh, sort of invented the same thing, you know, at the at the same time and for the same reasons, you know. So, yeah. so even though there were there were sort of you know political uh, differences, uh, you know, there was obviously you know because there was JWT TOFs and then later Sachi and Sachi, there were obviously the Conservative Party's agency and everything. Uh, but everyone, you know, the divisions, everyone got along okay then. I don't think there was uh, there was much infighting or kind of posturing in the industry press because everyone well, knew what they were there for, but they kind of covered different parts of the of the market, didn't they? You know, because if you were a if you were a sort of you know I don't know Tetley T or something, then you would go to BNP, wouldn't you? But if you were yeah. Uh, but if you were, you know, the Conservative Party, you go to Saatchi and Saatchi. Or, or J. Walter Thompson. Or, Exa yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But uh, I, so this is a long-winded intro, but I was talking, there's a guy, um, well, I won't say his name, but well-respected veteran ad guy in Melbourne, you know, and I was talking to him about this, and he said, you know, even back in the, uh, just in the 90s, you know, there, there were like, 20 different ad agencies in Melbourne, but they all did different things, you know. So if yeah. you wanted, if you wanted that kind of thing, you went, you know, you went to Mojo. But if you want yeah. another kind of thing, you go, you know, somewhere else. But 
you know, consequently, I think uh, that kind of distinction in terms of, you know, I think agencies now that it's very much a homogenous kind of dollop of, uh, you know, for the most part, people who just will chase anything with a budget. Um, um, I think so. I, I think to talk about the 70s and the 80s, you, it was a hugely political time, you know, mm. kind of um, that, 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 that people were, were, you know, youngsters were very politicized, you know, kind of, and people marched and people secondary picketed and people, mm. you know, kind of, it, it, pe people were militant left or, 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 you know, kind of uh, as, you know, kind of, there are not too many militant right, but people weren't afraid, you know, to espouse those views. And such and such, the most happening, exciting, intrepid agency for 20 years in the United Kingdom was, was true blue, yeah. you know. Um, I think what has happened is, um, I think it, if you would call it, what would you call it? I, I'll, I'll call, let's call it the long march through the institutions, Ian. Yeah. It was a phrase coined by a German student militant called Rudi Deutschke in 1974. Um, and it was an acknowledgement that the left had lost the, or, or could pro would probably lose the economic argument. Okay, it was quite mm. far-sighted that the left would lose the economic argument. But it certainly wasn't going to lose the cultural argument. And it was based upon the writings of an Italian communist called Antonio Gramsci, who Mussolini locked up. And Deutschke articulated this, and it got the it got the the, the papal blessing, no less, of of Herbert Marcuse and the Frankfurt School. Mm. Uh, and so, and since then, I think the establishment in the United Kingdom, and in pretty much most of them, you know, kind of uh, the, the the democratic world, or you know, in, in Western Europe, uh, particularly the United Kingdom, the United States, is left-leaning. You know, mm -hmm. over a period of 40 years, this long march through the institutions has left us with an establishment which is left-leaning. And mm -hmm. um, and the establishment and the middle classes are not stupid. You know, kind of they know they will cut their cloths accordingly. Okay, so the middle classes don't die in the ditch for any fucking principles. Hmm. You know? What they do, I mean, the, the rich ones, the ones you would describe to the American audiences, the ones who are used to wielding power, okay, mm -hmm. are really, really good at adapting, cutting their, their, their uh, you know, their, adapting to what the dominant power structure is at the moment. Mm. Um, and so, and you see this with the with the people who are leading the advertising industry. You mm. know, all of the Tobys, all of the 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 Oscars. You know, the Boudicas. <laughs> you know, kind of they're they're you know kind of they're all you know oh definitely left wing now because mm. they know that's where the jobs are. Mm. But but as you said before, it's it's left wing in a cultural sense, but yes. but with a complete and utter contempt. For uh, ordinary working class people, what the the, yeah. the, the, the Labour Party, for instance, or left were founded to represent. So all of that has gone out the window. Uh, of course, they wouldn't. They they'd be more believe in Santa Claus than they would in Clause Four. <laughs> we, and, you know, kind of. Yeah. Um, so yes, you know, they, as I say, they have no 
faith in or interest in the working classes. Yeah. Why should they? They can achieve what they want by espousing these the 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 the, the dominant groupthink by by con conforming to that. Um, and this is like you said before, responsibility. There, there's actually no responsibility that backs yeah. this up. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because uh, the. You know, what's, I think, you know, most most people have been aware of some of the more bizarre end of, of the kind of woke type ideologies that's been, you know, prevalent in universities, for instance. And, um, yeah. uh, and you know, and it's funny because it, it actually, you know, you look at people like Jordan Peterson, to, you know, yeah. gets, a, gets a bashing from, uh, from the sort of woke crowds but i mean they've basically created his fame you know because, you know for him because yeah. he, he was basically just a professor who spoke out against uh uh you know uh, some, issue? Uh, it, it was it was, it was about it was about pronouns or something in yeah, Canada. Miss, 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 who he she yeah. he and all that kind of stuff and, yeah, uh, yeah. and he sort of just spoke out and said no nah, i'm not doing that you know and so he went from yeah. this obscure uh professor and sort of you know Calgary or something, you know, to, to public enemy number one uh, of the, the cultural left. But, um, you know, it was kind of amusing when it would seem to be confined just to, to universities, you know, because, you know, you think, well, it's a storm in a teacup. It doesn't really spill yeah. out into ordinary uh, life. But how wrong we were, because, because uh, I think I, uh, we spoke about this before. I remember Dave Trotz uh, wrote this article in Campaign a number of years ago, and it was called Thomas the Fascist Engine. And, <laughs> and it was, Tell me about it. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was uh, about how, uh, you know, there'd been some outcry from, from some, you know, academic quarters, you know, to that, that basically Thomas the Tank Engine should be cancelled, you know, because it had, uh, you know, they'd worked right. out that it had some sort of, Nazi yeah. undertones or whatever, uh, and <laughs> but uh, you know, but what Dave Chalk pointed out correctly was, you know, the people in these kind of media studies courses and all that kind of stuff, that's the next generation of, of advertising of advertising professionals that are going to come in yeah. and, and bring those idiotic kind of beliefs um, or luxury beliefs. As, uh, yes, luxury. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's correct. Yeah, yeah. But let's actually. So actually, talking about you know the contempt uh, for the working class that, uh, that that many of these sort of media studies, you know, upper middle class graduates have, you know, working class people listening to opera. What? Oh, right. what? <laughs> yeah. You see that little segue I did there? Yeah, I thought that was very good. Yes, yeah. and I'm shamed. You, 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 you've shamed. You've outed me. Shamed me. And, um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No, I like it too. I I I remember going to see um, uh, uh, just when I was, I didn't. I kind of you know knew what opera was, but I didn't know anything particular. But I got taken to a performance of Carmen. You know. Yeah. Uh, which I think that's a gateway drug for opera. Yeah, I think for a, a lot of people. Yeah. You know? But it was just, it was absolutely spectacular. I didn't understand a word of what was being yeah. sung, but um, 
Uh, and then the next one after that was a Wagner thing set on a boat. Oh, I can't remember. About, yeah. I yeah. can't remember what that was, but it was just as uh, it was just as sort of uh, dramatic. So yeah, guess what? Uh, us scum, we can uh, we can actually yeah. appreciate uh, <laughs> appreciate well, the final. Well, well, I'll tell you how I got into it, should I? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was a huge Marx Brothers fan as a kid. All right. Uh, um, Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo. And they made four really cheap short films Duck Soup, Horse Feathers, Animal Crackers, and Monkey Business. Um, so, oh, horse and, Feathers, is that where the expression uh, comes from then? I've heard people well, say. Well, they adopted Horse Feathers. I think it was a, oh. it's a New York slang, I think. You oh, know? Right. Okay. Um, and then MGM bought them because they were famous, and they put them in this, this vehicle which would make them really popular. You know, kind of would take them from out of kind of cult status and make them into a big headline. And they had Alan Jones there, who was the, there was a singer called Jack Jones. Alan Jones was his father. Um, okay. And so he was a reasonably good tenor. Um, but it was called A Night at the Opera. And the funny thing is, you're talking about us, you know, about the proletariat being able to appreciate the opera or even being interested in it. But MGM chose A Night at the Opera as a mean, as a popular vehicle to launch the Marx Brothers, because right. they've wrecked, because people, you know, people hummed. Their, they knew their Giuseppe Verdi, you know, kind right. of. They knew their Enrico Caruso. He's probably, he was the Elvis of his day. Was yeah. Enrico Caruso, you know? Um, so it's only recently that we've, that it's become again. It's become the province of the. You know, kind of of the, of the well-to-do. They you, apparently, you know, kind of like there were two hundred thousand people at Giuseppe Verdi's funeral, and they all right. sang um, the song, the song of the Hebrew slaves from the Bucol. You right. know, kind of like yeah. uh, it's a you know they used to take baskets of food and wine and talk through the boring bits, which yeah, you know, fair enough, yeah. and then join in the bits they knew. Yeah. It's funny because when you see when you see people like uh, Tony Bennett, for instance, not. No, but when he was young, yeah, and so and so he was like Italian, you know, growing up in America, but yeah. he'd kind of he was he was a sort of he'd absorbed some of that American kind of, uh, you know, uh, the, the American culture, but he still he looked like a young sort of Italian opera. Neapolitan, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it yeah. was that sort of combination. You could and you could you know you can hear it in these early. Yeah. You just knew that he sung those traditional Italian songs, you know, before, you know, before yeah. he did the American songs. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, on you in, go. In, just... in the neighbourhood, I'm sure, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's the uh, so this particular piece that we're gonna that we're gonna hear? It's what... um, well, what I do is I, I and I I give you I advise your listeners to do this um, every Saturday night at. 6.30 in London on Radio 3, they do an opera on three and they and it's very often from the Met um, yeah. or the Royal Opera House. And I go upstairs to bed with a bottle of Prosecco and, um, and listen to it. And my missus stays downstairs and watches Strictly Come Dancing. And it's a wonderful, you know, kind of like I can hear what's going on downstairs, pop down to see who's got none at eight out of ten, all that kind of stuff. And, and I, and it's a great thing because Whilst you're, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, it's opera, especially when listening to it on the radio, because you don't get any clues as to what's happening, especially when it's a different language. But like, you're trying to follow it because you 
you you've got to know the story in order to work mm. out where everybody is but it takes a lot of is it system one thinking uh, Ian or system two I always get these two mixed up it takes concentration you know yes. conscious concentration to kind yeah. of keep up but it's wonderful because it lets the old you know kind of like subconscious go oh. go it, it, it has the night off yeah. and it, it just go and it and especially when you get into the second bottle or by the third act you know, you, I have, well, you know, I honestly do have, uh, I think, are some of my best ideas yeah. uh, when I'm supposed to be working out who's thrown which baby onto which bonfire <laughs> um, and who is the prince and who is the, the, the vagabond and, you yeah. know, kind of uh, all that, you know. Um, and so I would recommend, just to your listeners, try it. You know, you know, yeah. kind of read up, read up on the opera. Yeah. It, and the great thing about opera is it is it is an ex exercise in delayed gratification, mm. because you're going to listen for three hours to stuff that allows you, you know, it's you know, it plods along, and you are then going to get eight minutes of sublime stuff. And mm. this, the opera, the piece you're going to hear is from Tosca, and it's part of the repertoire, you know, and it's mm. very, very popular. But it still is, I find it a bit hard work you know um but my god you've got to wait for about two and a half hours until you get to this and then bloody hell was it mm. worth it <laughs> stuff you don't want to be and but you need a soundtrack you don't want to have stuff with words in it because it will interfere no. with the words so don't listen but but um you know opera of course is the exception to that because well assuming you don't, you don't speak know what the, the hell they're saying if you don't know what they're saying that it's uh, it doesn't interfere <laughs> with your with your words i was just reading a uh, reading a thing the other day about the uh, artist uh, jean-michel basquiat uh, right who um so on um they, they were looking at uh, obviously long dead but it was a retrospective yeah. and uh and they were uh looking at because uh, his his pictures are these kind of like uh, you know quite sort of brash sort of drawings of, of figures and everything but often surrounded with words you know that don't seem right. to be don't seem to be connected at all just sort of random 
uh, words. And then someone found one of his uh, notebooks. And it turns yeah. out that one of the things that he would do is when he was painting, because he was like a jazz uh, sort of aficionado, you know. So yeah. he'd listen to John Coltrane and Miles Davis and stuff when he was painting. And the words that are painted on the pictures are just words that just, you know, he just allowed his kind of subconscious to just produce whatever wow. it was thinking. Wow. And just whatever words yeah. came into his head, suggested yeah. by the music, would get written down, you know. Right. And that was, and that formed part, part of the picture, you know. So, uh, yeah, so it's not just Without us. the aid of two bottles of booze as well, right? <laughs> I think. Or maybe I, not. Yeah, I think he liked other substances, to be honest. Yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. yeah, but but it's that, you know, it's kind of a universal, human universal, that combination of uh, of sort of, you know, random sort of stimulus input and, you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of, you know, alcohol or narcotics. And yeah. there you go. That's the, that's it's your, your ba basal ganglia, apparently, yeah. are the things that go to work in, the, in your subconscious. You, and they start putting together some pretty random combinations, you know, kind of, yeah. you've just got to give them, give them the opportunity to have a bit of recreation, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then. I am... Um, I remember the first time we talked, I had a great long list of kind of like of things, you know, particularly stuff out of the book and everything. And then I think that's why it probably took too long because I tried to squeeze too much out of that. But the, but something I did doing want, okay, I think it's, it's yeah. ticking along nicely. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, be over by midnight. <laughs> but what I wanted to, because um, we did we did sort of uh, talk about this last time, so this is really uh, an up for you to give an update, right? So. Um, okay. So for the benefit of the listeners, we first met um, in person a few years ago in Melbourne where you were over doing a screening of uh, of the movie uh, yeah. you've made, which I said, uh, I remember I said before, it was a bit like the clockwork orange of <laughs> advertising <laughs> movies, which, because it was so hard to see, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, and you had to sort of, you know, fly to Paris to be able to, to see it. But anyway, but luckily you came out to, to Melbourne uh, and pre presented that to a, a group of sort of uh, yeah, comms council people or whatever, and I was there. I got my book signed as well because the um, the Howard Gossage book that you wrote, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I brought on you signed that. I've got to tell you, I actually, uh, a, 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 a client I was courting uh, a wee while ago, I, I gave them the, the book to borrow and uh -huh. uh, and then they ghosted me and totally disappeared so it's gone there forever so uh, there you go <laughs> no, you, you, ain't, you haven't got it you, you need uh, a new copy uh, no I mean I'll get another copy but I don't know how I'm going to uh, get you to sign oh, to it, sign it. yeah no, oh, okay. never, mind. never mind but anyway but do you want it because when last time we spoke, you said that that the um, you know because of a sort of uh, disagreement with other parties involved in the film, there was a sort of yeah. uh, uh, agreed sort of embargo, um, but that was due to expire this year. Mm. So what's what's the latest on the on the Gossage film? Um, yes, I, I agreed with the other parties that I couldn't release the film until twenty twenty until after twenty twenty. Um, but at the moment, uh, that, that I'm, I'm free from that now. Um, mm. And I have been talking to the School of Communication Arts about them kind of re releasing it 
yeah. as a yeah, and just put, making it free, uh, available to people. I also yeah. was talking to Jeff Goodby about it, and he said that I don't know. He said that it, it had Netflix potential, uh, yeah. and yeah. I assume that Jeff probably knows everybody in the media in yeah. in United States. Uh, and if anyone could make that happen, then it would be Jeff. So I, I shall, I shall put it. I shall hopefully release it in the uh, in early 2021. But yeah. then look forward to people saying, "How come somebody who wrote Changing the World is the Only Fit Work for a Grown Man about an advertising guy who who dedicated all of his talents to environmental issues? Yeah. Um, how come you've then turned around and written a book called about?" You know, kind of saying, well, we should get back to our commercial purpose. Um, so I look forward to that. To yeah. anyone, anyone alert enough to spot the apparent anomaly yeah. in those two positions. <laughs> well, I guess I, I would counter that. Uh, you know, if I was you and someone came up with that, I would say, well, but he. Wait put a minute, his, I'm going to get this down. Yeah, I say he put his money where his mouth is, right? He didn't, you yes. know, he didn't commit. You know, everyone knows about ad fraud, right? I would say a lot of this brand activism is ad fraud right because yeah. it's another type of fraud it's it's yeah people yeah. in agencies with an agenda spending marketing budgets other people's money on their pet yeah. projects right but you'd say Gossage didn't spend anyone else's money on pet projects he picked clients to help yes who's who had you know who had some sort of you know issue that he, he felt was worthy of applying his uh, or his agency's talent to and and got paid for it uh, so th you know there's no contradiction in my mind uh, between you know what what you're saying in can't sell won't sell and and what people like me are nodding in agreement with and uh, and um, you know actually you know you know putting you know putting your talents to uh, to working with you know particular organisations that might be doing something environmental or whatever because you're not you're not stealing anyone's money uh, no. uh, to do that. You know? No, oh, I don't uh, know. That got a bit serious for a second there, wasn't it? That was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, you know, kind of, I, I think going back to your thing about ad fraud is very interesting. You know, mm. kind of that it is it it, it that that in indulging our own uh, the industry's own fixations um that it is taking clients money under yeah. false pretenses exactly uh, yeah. Yeah. chapter um, on chapter on this coming up in my forthcoming third book uh, listeners uh, so. yes, yes. No, no no i think i think that it i think it, it, it it's quite quite right um yeah. and and i think that we're able to sell our 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 fixation uh, the the work that we're fixated upon for the causes we're fixated upon to yeah. cmos because cmos can't tell the difference they yeah. they're looking for i think a simple solution to the puzzling complexity of the job that they're asked to do and mm. when the agency rocks up and presents this to them they 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 go, wow, yeah, wow, yes, and 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 they and they they give them some Edelman research, which says 68% of customers will not buy from a brand who doesn't appear to be, you know, kind of meeting their yeah. social responsibilities, etc. And so the, the the CMO goes, absolutely brilliant, yeah. but 
there's a guy who works out of the country you're in, and you, you'll know him, Mark Ritson, yeah. who has nothing but scathing contempt for those CMOs, yeah. um, and says that none of them do anything remotely associated with tracking, measuring, or evaluating the campaigns that they are commissioning. No. Um, or, or, or seeing if they demonstrate return on investment or future value, you know. Okay, he, mm. he, he, he said, and he says, and the CFOs have started to to recognise this. That the CFO has had to put up with four or five completely useless, useful, useless idiots, you know, again, and is no longer and has run out of patience with them. Yeah. And he says this is about fifty percent of the CMOs he has to deal with. He said, or he experiences in the in the course of his working life, um, and this is you know kind of this is why the the ad world is able to 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 as you say perpetrate what is yeah. essentially yeah. Uh, fraud. I think there's a thing. With it. I don't yeah. think they will be doing forever. Yeah, there's a thing uh, Rory Sutherland talks about, which is quantification bias. You know. Which is which kind of explains a lot of brand tracking reports, you know, because as at a minimum they have to be 140 pages long, and they have to just be <laughs> crammed. You know, if you've got enough numbers, you can prove anything, yeah. Um, yeah. and that's and that's and CMOs, you know, that gives them a get out. You know, do you remember the do you remember the TV show W One, and it was a kind of spook yes. fly yes. on the wall yes. thing yes. about yes. the BBC, and. Yes. Uh, uh, in the meetings there, what you notice, whenever whenever there's a decision made, anyone in the meetings, they always answer with, they always say yes, no, yes, no, because then yeah. you've got then you've got both bases covered. Because then if it goes wrong, you can say, well, I said no, you know, or if yeah, it goes right, yeah. you say, like I said yes, and so that's that's what's going on with you know, I you know I talked yeah. to a, a couple of clients recently, you know, with small budgets and stuff, and they're saying, should we, uh, you know, should we keep some money aside for brand tracking? And it's like, well, <laughs> if you know, if you oh. want to, if you want to throw it down the drain, then yeah, you know. But I'd rather you kept the money and and just and, and, you know invested in some more media or something, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. then at least it's doing something. You know? Yes, yes, you know, kind of get it seen, get the advertising seen more often. That's you know? right. And yeah, because uh, but why yeah. would you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? <laughs> You might sell something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. No, I, I, uh, it's funny. I know the chat, but I'm just, you know, I'm looking at, at the list and, you know, because I, I can't remember who it was, who the Italian singer you said was uh, was Elvis. But but actually looking at the... Oh, what, Enrico Caruso. Caruso was Elvis. But, yeah. uh, you know, kind of Bowie was a bit of an Elvis. Springsteen's a bit of an Elvis. And, and Frank yeah. Sinatra is a bit of an Elvis as well. So there's a bit of a sort of theme... <laughs> Uh, and then our oh. final selection, which I won't reveal now that will come up later, is very, very Elvis. But, yes. um, but I guess the good way to introduce this, so the Sinatra track you picked is, uh, it was a very good year. Uh, yeah. And then we're playing this in 2020, which was a mm -hmm. very shit year. Yes. So <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But I think there's a, there's a certain amount of of wistful melancholy suffuses mm. this LP. Do you not think they, yeah, this song? Yeah, do you not yeah, think? Yeah. Uh, it's not. It, it certainly couldn't be sung by, sung by a boy band. I don't. No, think. Uh, no. But I mean, Sinatra. You know, I mean, we talked about this before. It had like a few careers, you know. Uh, but definitely, his kind of, in his kind of, you know, later 
you know, 40, you know, we think when he was older, he was only like 45 or something, but I guess back then that seemed to be older. But, um, but yeah, some of that more sort of grown up uh, stuff is, is definitely some of his best, uh, best period, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I think he's, a, again, I think we would we best listen to Frank while we can, because I should imagine that he is a, he's probably about five years away from being cancelled. Really? Um, he's a, he's a, he, he, I'm sure he's, he's, he evinces all of the qualities of toxic masculinity. Right. Um, he said he was a drunk, he was a womanizer, he was a violent man. He calls yeah. consorted with um, with with criminals, yeah. um, and he he liked to hang around with men a lot and yeah. tell jokes and yeah. um, and have a good time. So I'm sorry, he's probably you know kind of he'll, he'll probably be airbrushed out of yeah. uh, the popular annals of popular culture. But I think, although he did he did have uh, Sammy Davis Jr. up his sleeve, who's about the most marginalised kind of guy you could uh, think of. So that's maybe well, his get his get out of jail card with the uh, well, black with the council blind. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, he's criticised for that because in the show, you know, kind of in the in the Rat Pack shows, he mm. he you know he uses term, terms which nowadays would be would be I mean you know kind of like. Yeah beyond right. the pale but he also said the same things about his italian heritage yeah. and about, yeah. about yeah. joey bishop's jewishness but you know kind of but in in uh, in mitigation uh, there was this i I, I saw a documentary about count basie who oh, yeah. was one of the great band leaders of the mm. of the you know the era and frank he did a great album called sinatra basie as well and frank made sure that in that that basie's if, if Basie wanted an all-black lineup, then it was an all-black lineup. And yeah. and and when Basie played it in Vegas, Vegas was segregated, yeah. and only Lena Horn, because Bug Siegel took a shine to her, was she allowed to stay in the same hotel as white people? But the hotel management gave the order that all the sheets had to be destroyed uh, once Lena Horn had slept in them. Goodness so me! So Basie's playing at the Sands. And Sinatra insists that Basie is playing at the Sands, and Basie's in, um, orchestra are who Basie wants to play. There's no yeah. sense, you know. And Basie and Sinatra made it perfectly clear to everybody, uh, uh, to Basie and to the entourage, and to everyone in the hotel and all the audience that if there was a hint of racism, quote, he would he would break their fucking legs. Right. Or he would yeah. have their fucking legs broken. Yeah. You know, kind of. Um, uh, he did the same thing for Nat King Cole when Nat King yeah. Cole was being hounded out of uh, whatever neighborhood it was, all white neighborhood it was. In um, He sent people round to the neighborhood to say, button it. Um, he signed Trini Lopez, who was a Hispanic singer um, mm. who couldn't get, couldn't get signed by, you know, a white label, you know, kind of so. Mm. Sir Francis Albert, before he disappears into the dustbin of woke history, um, I think we should enjoy him. When I was 35 
It was a very good year It was a very good year For blue-blooded girls Of independent means We'd ride in limousines Their chauffeurs would drive When I was 35 moving to London uh, whenever that was late 90s so we uh, we packed up our house and everything uh, the truck went away with all the stuff and it was just me and my wife and our and we drove from Aberdeen to London in this little Audi A3 and it had a CD nice. player in it and uh, the, um, we packed all our music away and the only one I found in the glove compartment was like a two CD like best of Sinatra type thing. Right. And we just played that for like 10 hours on the drive. <laughs> uh, 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 so you know all the words to this one. Yeah, uh, right? but, but you know, there was some, obviously all the hits and that are on there, you know, but there was a few sort of extra songs that I didn't really know uh, so well. Yeah. Like his, his version of uh, September song. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, a long, long time from May to September. Yeah, yeah. yeah something. And that's life, right? Which you know it, it seems bizarre that you know i'd never heard it because it's such a well-known song but it just sort of it just really jumps it's not out. one of my favorites i must yeah. admit it's, yeah. um, it, oh, no, it was know. it was it was good sort of on the m6 at three in the morning yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. i'm sure it was I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> even for the third time as you, yeah. you roll into north london yeah right so be before we go to the last uh the, the last tune what's um okay this this will probably um by the time i do any editing and piece it together and that this will this will probably be the last episode before christmas that goes out oh wow so, out before christmas. That's good. yeah so just uh to to sort of end on a sort of positive note or a festive note or just a looking for i think we've had a year of not really been able to make any plans or sort of do anything other than just lurch from one week to the next yeah. um from a 
COVID situation in, I mean, just uh, in Australia here or in Victoria, anyway, where I live, I think we've had about a month of zero uh, cases, zero deaths. So things oh, are starting, oh. starting to crank up a little oh. bit back into, into sort of a bit like what it was before. Yeah, but um, it's not so good in the UK there, is it? No, no, it yeah. isn't. But but we we yeah we put our um, uh, our hope in the vaccine essentially, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and look forward to spring. You know, mm. Um, mm. and that's all you can do. I and, and write twelve months off from March through March. Yeah. And uh, if we've survived it, um, then let's go and enjoy the simple pleasures which we've been um, prevented from enjoying over yeah. the past 12 months. So. Yeah. So what 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 are you thinking next year is going to bring? Obviously, you've done you you know because uh, cancel won't sell. So you wrote the majority of that sort of really prior to to COVID, and then and then you added in another chapter at the end just before yeah. we were going to go to go to press what what's the um so this is always interesting for me to, to talk to other writers in terms of yeah. what, what what do you view as the sort of life cycle of a you know so you come out with a book or a film or something and and how long does it how long does it last i mean is that is that a, a year's worth of activity well, pr promoting this is stuff? a this is a weird one. I mean, whenever I write a book, I always think, well, that's it. I haven't got it. And that's it. You know, kind of, I'm, yeah. I've, I've, I haven't got anything else in me. And then something occurs to me, like, yeah. this, like as I say, the genesis of this one was Patrick Collister's uh, intervention. Yeah. Yeah. As far as, I mean, with this one, I, I, I am tempted to write um, version three um, and, and, cover the response to the industry's response to COVID-19 yeah. and its response and its response to the book yeah. um, because they, it's it's fa it, it what's fascinated me is that whilst I expected to have obloquy heaped upon me 95% yeah. of the response has been very very positive yeah. and I'm led to believe that the 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 social purpose agenda is being driven by a coterie of people that would be which is essentially careerists and activists mm. and there aren't many of them i don't think but 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 because they control the institutions uh that that govern advertising yeah. nobody nobody argues with them or can argue with them yeah you know, I mean, you, yeah, because you've had you've had a few run-ins with um, the oh, what's the guy's name DNA D. Uh, Tim. Yeah. Tim Lindsay. Yeah, who yeah. seems to exemplify that that kind of uh, point of view. It's almost like there is no arguing with him though, because he's so dogmatic. Uh, well, he said there's a great. I I t I would turn you to a podcast that he did with a chap called Ben Kay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you sent me that a couple of weeks ago. I have I sent it to you? Have a, have yeah. a listen. Yeah. It, it is quite, quite instructive as to exactly what plans Tim has got for DNAD. Um, 
he says that he's not bothered. He, he says that he's he can live with whitewash and um, and greenwash campaigns winning pencils uh, because hey, it's a step in the right direction. So this, yeah, this is comes back to fraud again. This is yeah, this yeah, openly yeah, condoning uh, fraudulent. Uh, uh, yeah. And this, despite the fact that Alan Jolp, who heads up what I, what I think is, I, I think they're sincere at Unilever. I think I've, I've got a lot of admiration for what Unilever do. I think that they've, they've bet the bloody house on it, to be quite mm. honest. It takes some nerve to do that. And they, mm. they, they are risking something, you know. Mm. Um, and Alan Jolp says that whitewash is a despicable thing. He says that it, at a time when the public's trust in advertising has never been lower, Mm -hmm. We are going to be awarding campaigns that 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 are fraudulent. Mm. You know? Not only that, but Tim also in the interview says that he doesn't mind if the works. He's aware that that some of the work that wins pencils is a scam. Mm -hmm. But he, he he didn't then follow that by saying, "And I intend to root that out and stop that from happening." Mm. Because in Tim's view, I'm pretty sure that the ends justify the means. Mm -hmm. And the means are, uh, are pretty much that the, that the organization and the awards, which are its manifestation, will be run to, in accordance with Tim's activist beliefs. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I'll give you one more from there, that, that it was mooted, that um, it was said, in the conversation, in five years' time or ten years' time, we're going to look back and say petrol-driven car advertising or companies like that shouldn't have been been awarded. Yeah. Right. So, so we're going to look back and we're going to go, oh my God, you know, kind of, how could we give a pencil to Volkswagen? You know, all of those lemon ads, you know, all those great Volkswagen ads again, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. think that we should we should burn Bill Burnback's book. Yeah. You know, it's so just, cancel culture comes to advertising, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 that it's that kind of thing where um just the meaning of words becomes uh you know the, what what I think it means and then you know talking about you know what is a creative you know piece of advertising or communications uh and you know and so in evaluating it, you know, you're looking for, well, there's all kinds of little cues that you look for that, that that's going to show you that there was some clever thinking or, you know, or it's yes. going to be beautifully kind of crafted or something, all those things aid to creativity. But the, when it becomes just about what is the, the kind of political point of view that it represents is all that you're uh, evaluated on, then there's no, you know, I guess it becomes, you know, it's like there's no, you don't actually need to be particularly creative uh, to make it. I look at, I mean, the other thing I'm interested in, just because my wife's a painter, and so I, and I went to art school and that, so I still keep yeah. an eye on the sort of international art world, you know. Yeah. It's, it's the same in there because you look through Artnet and Art Forum, uh, you know, to see what's going on in in you know, Italy and the New York and the art centres. And it's exactly the same, you know, because it'll be, um, you know, what's what's considered a great piece of art is yeah. is what what its political message is, you know. So you could it could just be, you know, I don't know, just pick any sort of, you know, 
pet social purpose cause, you know, yeah. which is like uh, something to do with like climate change. You know, they have like a giant 20 foot canvas which says climate change is evil. And that's the art, you know. But <laughs> automatically it gains the approval of the art world. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's not even, you know, even, you know, it's not this some sort of Philistine argument where it's like, oh, oh, well, you know, anybody could do that. I could splash paint no. on there. But I would rather see that because at least it's an expression of something. But it's just writing a, a, a statement. It's like that's, you could just put up a poster or just say that, you know. But, well, uh, the, the, the worrying thing about it, Ian, is that, that I was, when I, before I got drunk the other week, I was listening to Prokofiev's War and Peace. Right. Um, and Prokofiev uh, wrote that at the time of Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 and the, the victory in Stalingrad and therefore whatever, mm. the rolling back. And uh, with the censor with the looking over his shoulder, he produced what was a, a masterpiece. Okay, but then in 1948, a guy called Andrei Zdanov, Andrei Zdanov, uh, who was pretty much in line to succeed Stalin until he died suddenly, probably under suspicious circumstances, but he died. He issued, he got all of the, the he'd, already, he'd already had a go at, at literature, cinema and theatre. And, and in the meantime, had personally approved 176 execution lists uh, just in his spare time. <laughs> and he calls it, in January 1948, he calls the conference of the Central Committee and he calls the musicians to him. So he's got the hmm. coffee up there and Shostakovich there and their peers. And he delivers the, 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 Dan, the, 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 sorry, the Danov Doctrine. Okay. Hmm. And essentially what it is, it, 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 it's anti-formalism. You know, kind of, it, it is against formalism. There are mm -hmm. two. It, it decrees there are two types of music. There are there is bourgeois music, mm -hmm. and there is there is music that is formal. And anti-formalism refers to art for art's sake, which quote does not serve a larger social purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so this the the Zdanov doctrine basically says there are two types of work that can be produced and one of and the, and the work with the only work that is worthy of our approval or worthy of looking at or survival is that which has got a social purpose and we're getting there with advertising i'll right. just finish this with ben ben k when he was talking to tim suggested this he says you know the thing is he says they they, they we're used to i mean you know, kind of category for, categories for ethical work. That was how purpose in, was introduced. You know, kind of there would be categories mm. for ethical work, the silver pencil or the golden pencil or whatever. Mm. We said, but I've, by definition, all of the work is unethical, isn't it? Okay. Mm. So following from that logic, in the future, it would be best, he suggested, if the main body of DNAD awards were for ethical work and the, un, and the, and the unethical stuff became the stuff that was marginalized. Mm. <laughs> so under these new distinctions, the vast majority of pencils will go to work with a social purpose strategy, which mm. means that Tim and his fellow extremists will have imposed mm. their groupthink upon an entire bloody industry mm. with their version of the Zadoff decree. But that's the thing, but there's an industry that's standing there waiting to swallow that swallow that up whole, you know. I, t I sent a thing the other day, you see the dude from uh, TVWA, 
Yeah, I think he's like the global chairman, some French guy. You know, he's, yeah, and his, you sent me that. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the thing what he was like uh, saying that you know the industry needs to come out against. Uh, uh, it was the, the word he used was desire. You know, I remember when I was in a direct marketing agency, that was our motto was like creating desire. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, hang on, yeah. that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed yeah. to yeah. make make things look attractive to people so that they they buy them, but so they want them. Yeah. yeah, but but the the global head of an Omnicom creative yeah. agency is saying that, that that that's not what they what they do. I don't know how they stay in business. If I was marketing director, they are you know of like client of theirs. I'm saying so. Hang on a minute. You think the point of your business is to make people not want to buy my product? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. You're fired. Yeah. Well, they. I'm afraid <coughs> that they are. Yeah, in a in a in in a free market economy, they will go out of business. The yeah. problem, the the great tragedy is that the money will go to those who are, in your immortal words, delivering junk mail by by um, by drone. You know, right. kind of yeah. the, the 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 direct and digital sales activation yeah. people <clears throat> who chase you around the internet, shouting offers at you. Yeah. So it's you know I guess you've got you've got one on on the creative side you've got like fraud that is out in the open right and then but yeah. then but because of that all the business is getting driven towards you know all of the the, sort of <laughs> the ad tech who are just as fraudulent but they keep it but they keep it hidden yeah but they, but yeah they yeah. Okay. Right. yeah okay um, cool I, yeah yeah I'm, I was just, <laughs> Yeah, I was. I was just gonna. I was gonna say we need to. Uh, we're in danger of getting into into two-hour territory again. So, yeah, okay. right. <laughs> so, but I'm gonna. Um, yeah, let's. Uh, I've, I've actually. I've got to go and do some things uh, uh, today. I'm just still sort of. Uh, you know, can't believe we're allowed out of the house. So, you know, got to go and do. But let's. Um, uh, let's wrap up with our final of the five Elvises. Yes. Uh, so this is the Elvis of jazz. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, tell us a bit about your, um, about Chet Baker. Um, I, 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 I think I should backtrack and say that I, I loved Bowie and I loved Bruce Springsteen. Um, and I, and I, but it's my contention, and again, this probably we, we could we could discuss this over over a drink or two. But I think that if you're a youngster, you have the gestalt by the bollocks as far as music, popular music is concerned, and popular culture is concerned, youth culture is concerned, for about three years between the ages of 18 and 23. And I just lived and breathed, you know, kind of music uh, mm. in those in that time. But then I realised that I should. You know, I, let, I just move away and let somebody else get in on it, and that's probably why I've started to, you know, kind of take an interest in opera and, and rediscover Frank Sinatra. Um, mm. And I thought I should also have a look at um, bebop. Um, mm. And so I, you know, kind of it's something that uh, in in 1959 it was the apogee of bebop's fortunes you know kind of there were half a dozen of the best jazz lps ever produced in that year and you would have thought that going into the 60s that the that the that popular culture would be you know kind of uh, would would be jazz you know kind mm. of um and 
it never happened, unfortunately. It never happened, unfortunately. But um, but I. Why, why do you, Why do you think that was? What you know? Um, I think that we take the path of least resistance. You mm. know, kind of uh, that that learn three chords and start a band mm. is something everyone can do. Whereas not everybody can do be Sonny Rollins, mm. who when he was the best saxophonist mm. in the world actually went and sat, stood on a bridge in Williamsburg Bridge in New York and practiced for 18 months. You know, right. he's the best saxophonist in the world. And then he, he doesn't make another record for 18 months. He goes and stands on a, on a, on a bridge in New York practicing every day for yeah. six hours. Yeah. So learn three chords, start a band or be Sonny Rollins. Yeah. Oh, I think I'll be, a, I think I'll get into rock and roll, mate. And of yeah. course it's, 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 it's called popular music for a reason you know kind of well, i wonder if it was because i have thought about this and i wondered if it was because of uh you know basically singles right so you yeah. know that that was affordable right so a, yeah. a three minute song yes. you know you know for kids that you know da -da 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 -da. but but because jazz didn't do that it, you know because miles right. davis or someone would pump out albums like like yeah. the beatles did singles you know like be like you know eight a year um and it would You're just be right. it'd be difficult just from a purely from a money point of view to, to to keep up with that kind of output wouldn't it dave brubeck is probably the only one that springs to mind with take yeah. five yeah you know yeah. um a four minute single fabulous four minute single but then mm. again i think chet baker nearly did it uh, yeah, and he's yeah. my final choice um mm. chet was a lot more accessible i think than anyone like Ornette Coleman or Charlie yeah. or whatever. So he was accessible and he was West Coast jazz as well. So yeah. he was Hollywood. He was um, a yeah. beautiful looking fella, great voice as well, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, as you, you're going to hear. So Mo and I, my partner and I, take a jazz record off with us or a Boston Over record off with us uh, to Portugal when we're on holiday. We just go and sit and drink as the sun goes down, listening mm. to, you know, kind of a new jazz record or a new Bossa Nova record mm. or an old Chet Baker record. And this mm. one is probably, after the, after the second bottle, is by far our favourite, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the bit about let's get lost, crossed off everybody's list, always yeah. appeals to us. Um, wonderful. Yeah, well, yeah, because it's, you know, I suppose if you sort of, uh, you know, when you hop off to a sort of... Uh, because I, I remember you told me before, where you go in Portugal is not uh, is not the most. You know, oh God! It, it'd be, no, it'd be, it would be hard. Yeah, but you would be you'd be hard to find there. So uh, yeah, you know, yes, no, I'm the only English. We're the only English people there, um, yeah. and I can't wait to get back. I really, really cannot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, there you go. We're saying what we're looking forward to next year. So hopefully March comes around. Everyone's uh, inoculated, and then, uh, yes. and then, you know, the summertime, you can uh, you can be, you know, quaffing your sort of uh, whatever the Portuguese margarita. Uh, Thank you. 
let's get lost, lost in each other's arms. Let's get lost, let them send out alarms. And though they'll think us rather rude, let's tell the world we're in that crazy mood. Let's defrost in a romantic mist. Let's get crossed off everybody's list to celebrate this night we found each other. Let's get lost. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for coming on. I think uh, I think we achieved our objective, which was uh, which was keep it punchy. <laughs> Uh, stick to the facts. Yeah, not not sort of go off uh, off piste uh, too much. No. But, but but there was quite a lot of spontaneity there. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe the last time we talked, I had you know I was too conscious of covering all the topics. Whereas really, I just had I just scribbled a few things on a piece of paper. And said, right, we'll just no, talk, I, talk I, around those. Yeah. yeah, I think we enjoyed ourselves too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the problem. You know, we yeah. were just we were having too good a time, and we yeah. we kind of ignored. We'd forgotten the fact that somebody yeah. that that, uh, that the audience's reaction would be, "I'm very pleased for you." Yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah, we've been a bit more informative uh, here. So, I hope yeah, so. Yeah. So I think uh, <clears throat> yeah, you can uh, sign off the proposition on this. Uh, on this show. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right. Well. Listen, I'm off to uh, uh, to go on with my day. I expect you will be uh, uh, getting ready to end your day. Um, yeah, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a bottle of wine now. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you okay. very much indeed. I okay. that was that was okay. terrific. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for your Thanks patience. To, no bother. And we'll do this again uh, sometime when there's. Um, uh, I'm sure the industry is going to throw up uh, <laughs> uh, some things that we can that we can talk about. So. <laughs> well, right. I tell you, I'm I'm coming to Bondi as soon as I possibly can. Uh, okay. That's the other place that I miss usually. So well, I I sincerely hope that I see you um, within the next twelve months. I hope. Okay, bro. Yeah, well, keep me posted. And uh, yeah, because if you are going to be out here, I'll I'll make a point of trying to be. Uh, in the same place at some point. No, yeah, well, yeah. we'll we'll meet. We'll yeah, we'll, we'll we've got to do it. That would be lovely. All right. Okay. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thank you. Speak to you later. Bye.